Well, I would ask that if you have your copy of the Scriptures, that you would turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, tonight we are going to be covering verses 43 through 47. 43 through 47, and I would ask that if you're able that you would please stand for the reading of the Word of God. So the words of Jesus Christ, your King, your Savior, your Prophet. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, we ask that you would commune with us this evening by your word. We ask that your grace would be with us. We ask that your spirit would be with the preacher. We ask that he would be with the congregation. Lord, that by the administration of your word, your people would be sanctified. Your people would be edified. Lord, we, we, we'd ask that th- this would be a fruitful endeavor. We ask that we would be firmly rooted in, in your teaching, that it would control how it is that we live uh, as we go on to the rest of our week. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We thank the Lord for the opportunity that we have tonight to continue our studies in the Sermon on the Mount. The, the passage that we are going to be looking at tonight is really a building off of what we've covered last time. Uh, in the previous section, that is verses 38 through 42, Jesus taught us not to pay back evil for evil. He taught us to turn the other cheek. Uh, to go the extra mile, as well as of having just a, a general, really, attitude of kindness and generosity. Uh, the Christian is to be a charitable person. And, and beginning in verse 43, what we're going to be looking at tonight is he is going to then be extending that teaching even further as we hear his astonishing words that we should love our enemies. Very much in continuity with everything that we've covered as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, we've, we've really seen that Christian ethics and, and Christian morality is of a completely different caliber than the natural and fleshly mindsets. Uh, God calls us to a much higher standard of living than what we normatively see in the world. That should 
convict us, that should inspire us, uh, that should do a number of things for us. And so in verse 43, we hear now Jesus saying to the crowd, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, those of you who have been paying attention uh, to these sermons, you, you, you already know, I don't need to get into all that information about what Jesus is doing with the construction of you have heard it said, but I say to you statements, how he is going to be bringing up and then contradicting uh, traditional Jewish teachings and understandings. Although some say that Jesus is here critiquing the Old Testament, here we see very clearly this is not at all what he was doing, for nowhere in the Old Testament are we commanded to hate our enemies. To understand, perhaps, why at the time of Jesus the Jews thought this, we need to examine the phrase, you shall love your neighbor. Rather than, those of you who have heard me teach for any lengthy period of time, I've I've used the illustration in the past of, you know, throw pillow statements or, or coffee mug verses where we just take these verses out of the Bible and they're very, very, very cute and they're very, very pleasant and, and we stick them on, you know, our apparel or, or whatever it is, but we don't really think very much about them. Uh, we see that a lot with the, the, with the Beatitudes and that's why we spent... Ten sermons covering them was to really get into what was being stated there by Jesus. But so, you know, when when we have been, for those of us who have been around the church for a very long time, when we hear statements like, you uh, shall love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? It's like, okay, how many times have I heard that? It's like I already got that, already know that, and... And so the, the, the scary thing is, is that we think we know something so well, so we don't think very much about it. And, and so the phrase, you know, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself, rather than being some trite, sort of cute, throw pillow phrase, the, the commandment, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself, is seen at the very center of the holiness code in Leviticus chapter 19. Jesus, at one point, calls it the second greatest commandment, saying that upon this, and of course to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he says on those two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If you look at uh, the Ten Commandments, we talk about the, the first and second table. The first four commandments have to deal with loving God, and the second, uh, or the Commandments 5 through 10 have to deal with with loving your neighbor. Jesus says all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament teaching, all of Christian ethics is built upon first loving God, loving your enemy, and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And it has been well said that if you are doing the first, if you are loving God, the second, loving your neighbor, is naturally going to follow from that. And, and so we understand that. Loving one's neighbors, one loves himself, it's, the, it's at the very center of our being and how we are to live our lives. For as we shall see, it is a true reflection of the character of God. But if that is the case, you know, why then did the Jews, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, 
get so mixed up as to teach that we should hate our enemies. Uh, It seems that the answer lies in how they defined the word neighbor. You see, they seem to have limited who their neighbor was strictly to uh, other Jews and then even beyond that, you know, especially those who were closely acquainted with them. Uh, you know, those who were their, their friends kind of thing. They, they then reasoned based off of this that if they were to, you know, positively love their friends, well, then they were to then hate their enemies. That this is a false understanding of the word neighbor is seen clearly in Jesus' teaching. Uh, in Luke chapter 10, and, and this is something you all know well, in Luke chapter 10, a, a lawyer is said to try and put Jesus to the test, and a lawyer approaches him And he asks, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds and he says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answers, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus tells him that he is correct. But the man then asks, well, and the text actually says, desiring to justify himself, says, the man says, well, who is my neighbor? Perhaps shows that he was feeling some kind of conviction on this very point, and that's when Jesus tells this very famous parable in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him. And beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, Well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. You all know this parable. You've probably heard a hundred sermons on it. But we see that the the priest and the Levite, those who were most honored and celebrated in the society of Israel, the priest and Levite go walking on by this man. They pay him no regard. The man who fell among the thieves, and yet it was the Samaritan of all, of all others, who stopped and helped. Jesus asked, he says, well, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? The man answered, he says, well, it's, it's the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, you go. Take what I've just told you, now apply it. You go and do likewise. Now, what's so interesting about this is that the conversation you know, began when the man asks, well, who is my neighbor? You know, well, who should I love? Jesus then says, and this is really interesting, Jesus then says that the true neighbor 
is the one who is gracious. The true neighbor is one who shows mercy. But rather than defining that as, well, you need to be good to those who are good to you, Jesus says, when it comes to loving your neighbor, it's a matter of, well, how do you be a proper neighbor to others? Uh, Jesus tells him he must live like that Samaritan, the one who was the true neighbor. You see, when God gives the command, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself, the point is that you should recognize you yourself are someone's neighbor. Okay? So the question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, how do I be a neighbor? What is required of a neighbor? That is that you love as you love yourself. Now this parable Jesus tells has a particularly strong sting in the first century context. As was talked about when we looked at the previous section, the Jews had a very strong sense of nationalism uh, at this time period. Obviously, we know that they had a strong hatred towards the Romans, but towards the Samaritans as well. Uh, we, that comes up in John chapter 4 uh, when the woman at the well says, well, how do you speak to me, a Samaritan? And so even though the Jews you know, thought it acceptable to hate the Romans or to hate the Samaritans, Jesus reveals that they are your neighbors as well. So to love your neighbor means to love them. It means to love your Roman captors. It means to love those unclean uh, heretics. I, I, I have read some of the firsthand accounts of what the Jews taught about the Samaritans, and it, it's, it's like literally disgusting. The, the slanderous, horrible, nasty things that they said about the Samaritans. You know, you think about at certain periods of time in this country where there's tremendous division between blacks and whites, don't even come close to the, the Samaritans and the Jews in, in Jesus' day. And I, I would defend that claim, to be honest with you. And so we can see in, in Jesus' teaching how horribly corrupted the traditions of his day were. But let us then look at what else our Lord has to say that we might be led into true light. So in verse 44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, in this place here, we see what could possibly be considered Jesus' most radical moral teaching of his earthly ministry, uh, that being to love one's enemies. Is there anything else we could think of that is more contrary to mankind's fallen nature? This is one of the reasons why I've said in the past that in order to truly obey, in order to truly follow the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, you need to be a Christian. Uh, th this is stuff that is utterly inconceivable for the unregenerate man to do. You know, God's moral law can and should be used as the basis uh, to you know, publicly restrain and curb man's evil, but we should never allow ourselves to entertain the idea that the natural man can ever truly fulfill the teachings of Scripture. For Jesus' teaching extends even to our hearts and minds which is why our hearts must be purified. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
And now, just as we were talking about in the last section, you know, men love to retaliate. Men love to hold grudges and to seek revenge. The reason men love to do this is because it feels good. Men would not sin if they did not love doing it. And natural men love to hate their enemies. It it feels good. It fulfills one's pride to have enemies as, as as we combat against them. There is a carnal, sick, and twisted, perverted thing inside of us that is satisfied as we hate others. Jesus' teaching is always cuts us straight to the heart and teaches us not even to just, you know, tolerate our enemies, not even just to be okay with our enemies, not even just to keep a peaceful atmosphere with our enemies, but to love them. Notice here, love is something that can be commanded and is commanded. In our Western culture, we do not understand what love is. We think that love is primarily a feeling and that, you know, we can fall in or out of it. That's why our culture's view of relationships and and marriage is so utterly repulsive in the sight of God. Rather than choosing to make a, a sacred vow with another in the covenant of marriage, we have boyfriends or girlfriends that we use to satisfy our fleshly desires for months or years on ends, but whom we never commit to. And even when we do have marriages, how many often because of no-fault divorce and things like that end in divorce over hideous, stupid reasons? And now our culture is even seeking to redefine what marriage is, something that they cannot do any more than they can redefine a tree. Because God created what trees are, He will define what a tree is. God created marriage, He will define marriage. By saying that men, you know, they try to say men can marry men and others such like abominations. And when you talk to these people, what serves as the foundation of their argument? So oftentimes their arguments are, but, but they love each other. But, but they love each other. They can't help it, you know, because love is just this floaty, sort of fuzzy thing. You can't control it, you know. But that's because our society treats love as though it's just this vague sort of emotional concept and not something that has any true foundation. The reality is that the Scriptures define love and love can be commanded. What are the two greatest commandments? You know this. It's to love God and it's to love your neighbor. Love, therefore, can be commanded. It can be required of you. So we're not talking about having warm, gooey, buttery, fuzzy, soft feelings about our enemies. Those types of emotions can't be controlled. Men are bidden in scriptures to love their wives. This does not mean that every single moment uh, when they are not experiencing particular emotions that you're sinning because you're not feeling this way. We understand that to love your wife means to consistently work, to care for, to provide for, to protect her, uh, and so on. You know, actions speak louder than words, as Otis Redding said. And so we see that a man who, you know, wakes up early, goes to work, makes sure he provides for his family, and comes home tired, 
truly loves his wife and truly loves his kids, even if he's too exhausted to experience particular feelings in that moment. And so when Jesus commands us to love our enemies, remember, love is a command, we should recognize that us loving them means to actively work, to actively live in such a way that is loving towards them. Not that our emotions are, you know, totally disconnected from this anymore, that emotions are totally absent from the context of marriage. But what is being commanded to us by our Lord has more to do with how we live than how we feel. Which means then, you need to do things for your enemies which demonstrate a desire on your part to be loving to them. Now, is there anything on this planet that you want to do less? And yet right now, your Savior commands you. So before we move on, there's one other thing I want to address, and that's the issue of imprecatory psalms. Because, you know, if we're being told here by Jesus to love your enemies, and yet we read things in the Psalter like, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. That's Psalm 139, 21 through 22. And so, how does that square up with Jesus' statements in this passage? But what must be noticed, and this is very important, is that the psalmist is there addressing God's enemies, not his own. And this is a theme that is seen throughout the Psalms, and so we as Christians need to learn to distinguish between different kinds of hate, just as we do different kinds of love. For instance, I was talking about you know, loving your wife and how it relates to loving your enemy. We see that there is a similarity, but we all intuitively recognize that the way a man loves his wife is very, very different uh, than you know, he's to love his wife in a way that he is not to love any other woman. And so how can, them thinking about this issue of imprecatory psalms, how can at one time we be told not to hate our enemies, and yet we read the psalms, and the psalmist is talking about how he hates the enemies of the Lord? Well, in our last session, if you remember, we talked about the distinction between, you know, turning the other cheek to those who insult your person or your character, and how that did not contradict uh, defending yourself or your family from harm. And so when Jesus says to love your enemy, he is referring to those people in your life who hate you because of who you are, uh, who hate your character, who hate your person. We're talking about a personal enemy in this sense. You know, because for some unknown reason, uh, certain people in our lives are going to view us as enemies. It's, it's just the reality. They are going to view us as adversaries just because of our personalities, because we got something that they didn't or you know, something like that. When the psalmist is you know, praying about hating God's enemies, he's, not, he's praying concerning people who seem to make it their business to wage war against God. You know, In the Old Testament context, you could think about foreign kings. We could think about false teachers who often led the Israelites astray. In our own day, we could think about false teachers. We could think about pornographers. We could think about abortionists, wicked rulers and leaders uh, as being God's enemies. 
and it is exceedingly appropriate, nay, necessary, for Christians to pray concerning how we truly hate this unrighteousness, how we truly hate this ungodliness to the point where we can pray specifically, Lord, I hate this evil person. But then how do we also love those people? Can we at the same time both love and hate the politician who signs a bill of legislation to sacrifice children in the womb? I would suggest that there's a way we can, and I think Jesus gives us the answer. Uh, And so it's only when we make the proper distinction about what love truly is and isn't, as we've already done, because obviously Jesus is not telling us to have warm, fuzzy feelings about Herod when he calls for all the male children in Bethlehem to be slain. How we can do this in a real practical way, I think Jesus helps us out in verse 44. Jesus, when telling us to love our enemies, gives us an example of how to do it, does he not? He says to pray for those who persecute you. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, Paul says that the Lord's servant must correct his opponents with gentleness. By the way, the Lord's servant has opponents. There are people who oppose him. He is to correct them with gentleness. But then Paul adds, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So so God honoring servants of the Lord, people are going to oppose you in this life. Uh, That's an inescapable reality. Think about it. There would be no way for us to love our enemies if we did not have enemies. Uh, Jesus said that just as they hated me, the world will hate you also. It's just a reality of the Christian life. But we see from the words of Paul that when it comes to our opponents, we should desire their repentance, right? And so if Jesus tells us to pray for those who persecute us, I think firstly, we should pray for their repentance. I perceive that at times, even Christians secretly do not want certain individuals to repent. There is the famous case of Jeffrey Dahmer, a homosexual serial killer and cannibal who was reportedly converted uh, and became a believer in Jesus Christ during the time he was in prison. He actually, I listened to an interview with the guy who was basically his pastor, and the guy who was shepherding him basically said, look, he was showing genuine repentance. He was showing fruit. He was like he was growing in Christ. I believe it, it was a genuine conversion, genuine work of the Spirit of God. And there are so many Christians who they look at that and they just think, ugh, that they're just so troubled by this. You know, how could, how could someone like him go to heaven while, you know, their non-believing family member who, you know, they never killed or ate anyone. They, they, they did, their, their, went to their jobs, they provided their family. They just seem like such a good, outwardly moral person. How could God send them to hell, and yet Jeffrey Dahmer gets to go to be, live with Jesus Christ for all eternity. And, and, and the reality is you need to understand something. God is not going to hold your non-believing family member to the standard of Jeffrey Dahmer or Adolf Hitler. He's going to judge them according to the standard of his word, and the only person who's ever, ever fulfilled that standard is Jesus Christ. 
You see, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Don't sit there and say, well, I'm better than the axe murderer down the street. You're not better than Jesus Christ, and he is the standard. God will define his own parameters by which to judge mankind. He has the right to do this because he is the creator. You are the creature. He is the potter. You are the clay. And so thus, I confess, and it's hard to conceive, there are some people who I think even some Christians find it hard that they would even desire for that person to repent and be converted. And so when Jesus tells us to pray for those who persecute us, we see how at times that can be difficult. Because there's a part of us, you know, if we are, if you are a mother whose child, Herod, had just taken and killed, it would be very, very hard for you to pray that Herod would would repent and straighten out. You would just want to see him destroyed. But yet the heart of the Christian should be to desire men's repentance. And so, you know, but we're not only commanded to pray for something's repentance. It is also appropriate, as we see in the Psalms, to pray that God would destroy his enemies. So how do we harmonize these things? Well, I think we can both love and hate God's enemies at the same time. A prayer might go like this concerning an an evil ruler. Uh, Lord, I pray that such and such individual would be granted that repentance which leads to life, that he may live and serve in a way that is pleasing to you. But dear Lord, if it is your will, I pray that he would be crushed under your severe and devastating wrath. You see, what a prayer like that does, it's like we're simultaneously loving our enemies by praying for them while leaving vengeance in God's hands, Uh, which is what he instructs us to do in Romans chapter 12. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Do not take vengeance upon yourself, beloved. God will take care of that. The primary way, as it is a specific example that Jesus brings up in the text, that we can love our enemies is by praying for them, but we should obviously not limit our love to this. We can love our enemies by helping them in times of need. The Samaritan in the parable helped the one who had fallen in among the thieves and robbers. We can love our enemies by demonstrating that we truly care about them uh, by trying to reach out to them, to, to, to make amends and to, and to be reconciled. And we know that we cannot control other people's hearts. Paul tells us to strive to live at peace with all men so far as it depends upon you. They, your enemies, I mean, they're your enemies after all. They may reject and spit upon your love, and, but they will have to answer to the Lord for that. We can still work to show love to these individuals. You see, God calls us to faithfulness. God calls us to obedience. We leave the results to Him. One of my favorite stories in church history has to do with a man who is very controversial. A lot of people don't like him, but I, I, I love this man. I consider him a mentor. His name is John Calvin. And one of my favorite stories in church history has to do with his relationship to the city of Geneva. The first time that Calvin ever came to Geneva, he unintentionally, that's a fascinating story in of itself, I have to stay focused though, uh, he became a pastor in that city, 
And, at, and it was a terrible time for him. If, if you read about some of the stuff that was going on, I mean, riots and dissension, all, all kinds of craziness. And, and so the people at first sort of like hated him and drove him out of town. And, and so later on, Calvin, he, he moves on to Strasbourg where he was much, much happier uh, than he was when he lived in Geneva. Well, the Roman Catholic cardinal, Jacob Sadaletto, writes to the Genevans criticizing the Protestant movement, uh, uh, saying, trying to persuade them to come back to, to, to Rome and things like that. And, and eventually the people of Geneva realize, well, we kind of only know one person who is qualified and, and is able to respond to this, and yet we just kicked him out. And so they very, like, you've got to imagine how sheepishly they, they, they do this, they write back to Calvin and they ask if he can provide a response to Sadaletto. They just drove him out of town and now they're like, well, we need your help. And did he go, no, you rejected me and, and he just brushed him off? No. He, he does it. And if you read the letter, he opens up saying, at uh, the beginning of the letter he says, you know, though I, I no longer uh, live in, in the city of Geneva, I, I still believe that I am to be a shepherd to them. And he shows this great love for them, and he writes this, this wonderful response. It's considered one of the most important documents of the Reformation. Well, eventually, the people decide they want Calvin back. And, and do you know what he did on his very first sermon? Rather, you know, he could have gone up there, and he could have pointed his finger and ridiculed them and, and all sorts of things for for driving him out and the way they mistreated him. But what he did is he stepped into the pulpit. He began preaching on the next verse that he had left off on years before. The next verse. Forgiveness, all is well. Let me continue to shepherd you. Though the townspeople had made themselves enemies of him, he did not view them that way. He, he, he looked at them as a shepherd and loved them. One of my favorite biblical examples of this type of thing is seen in the life of David. Uh, obviously, you, you know the tension that is between uh, Saul and, and David. And, and at one point, David, you know, he's near enough that Saul is in a compromised position, he, he, and, and David would be able to sneak upon him and kill him. Yet David doesn't do that. He merely cuts off just a piece of his robe, a piece of his garment. And David eventually he sneaks out of the cave and he reveals this to Saul. And Saul makes a statement, one of the wiser moments of his life, which reveals just how contrary David's actions are to fallen human nature. And in 1 Samuel 24, he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good. Whereas I have repaid you evil, and you have declared this day how you've dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. You know, another great example of this is in the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. You know how shamefully, how, how evilly his, his brothers uh, treat him. Oh, they, they were actually to the point of they were going to kill him, and yet God restrained their evil. 
and, and you know what happens with, with Joseph, how he's accused of uh, being sexually immoral with Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into, into prison and all these different things. All, all this crazy providential stuff happens to him. And you got to think, how, how, during the, that time, uh, the many, many years it was, some of the emotions and some of the feelings that he would have thought about, about his brothers, you know, how he could have just, you know, the natural thing to do would have just been to allow that to stir and stir and fester like a tumor. And yet, when uh, Joseph's brothers return to him, they don't recognize him, he recognizes them, and he treats them with love. And, and, and when they say to him, we, we, and they confess they're wrong and all these different things, Joseph, Joseph looks at them and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, to save many people alive today. You see, what, what, what made Joseph able to make a statement like that was his faithfulness and obedience to the Lord God throughout all those different things. And thus, though his brothers were so evil to him, he did not repay, repay evil for evil. He loved them. We see that, you know, we bring up these Old Testament examples uh, that this idea of loving your enemies is not like some brand new concept that Jesus came up with. It is very consistent with the Old Testament's teaching. For example, Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5 says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. In Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 through 22 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will keep burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. You know, people who say that the Old and New Testaments are contradictory are blatantly disproven by simply reading them. Uh, th that idea of loving your enemies, it was there in, in, in God's law. It was there in the law and the prophets. The Jews, by their traditions, had, had just perverted it. And so in the next few verses, Jesus is going to expound on this topic some more and reveal how this character is reflective of the character of God. In verse 45, Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What is being talked about here in verse 45 is what theologians often call God's common grace. This idea that though God only grants his special redemptive love uh, to the elect, those who believe in Jesus, that God is so gracious, God is so loving, that there is a general love that he shows to all of mankind, even those who are his enemies. Think about the Noahic covenant. After the flood, God promises not to destroy the earth by flood again. It's not, you know, believers are not the only person who gets to see the rainbow, which is a sign of that covenant. No, all of mankind gets to see that, that covenant sign. What that means is that there is a certain level, a certain kind of love that God shows to everyone, whether they hate him or not. God is so gracious, there's a general love he shows even to his enemies. Jesus says he makes his son rise on the evil 
as well as the good. Notice he calls it his son. The, the son belongs to God. The people, human beings, are not owed the son. They don't deserve sunshine. God owns the son. It belongs to him. He graciously allows us to experience its benefits. He sends rain on both the just and the unjust. You know, both sunshine and rain are necessary and vital to human life and existence. People who grew up in, in an agricultural background know this. Most, I think a lot of people in today's society, you know, only view the weather as something that may or may not inconvenience them. But, but farmers that, that I know, they know that the amount of rain that they get if it's not enough or if it's too much, is vital to the growth of their crops. And so even though there are people all across this planet who day by day rebel against God, who trample His law underfoot, who delight in disobeying Him, just read Romans chapter 1, God still allows them to have food. God still allows them to have the breath in their lungs. God still allows them to have families. God still allows them to enjoy life, etc. This is God's common grace. Think about that next time, by the way. Um, if you're out in public, if you're at you know, a ball game or a concert or, or, or something, and you see all these people just gathered to, having a good time, if they only knew that that good time they were experiencing was a gift of the Lord, if they knew that, they understood that, they would immediately go home and repent. But this is not just a topic for, for theologians to expound upon. This is a reality of who God is. And the way Jesus is talking about this, he uses this as, like, that's how... This is something that should be expressed in how all Christians live their lives. Just as God, in a certain sense, loves his enemies, uh, a husband loves his wife in a way that he does not love other women. God loves the elect in a way he does not love all people. We understand that. But God still shows love to his enemies. And thus, so should we show love to our enemies. Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You know, oftentimes people can, who know my family can look at me and can tell that I am my Father's son because I resemble him, not in appearance only, but my mannerisms, personality, things like that. It is so reflective of my Father. People can look at me and say, well, you must be Joe's boy. And in the same way we resemble oftentimes our earthly fathers, we should resemble our heavenly Father who has adopted us. People should be able to recognize that we are truly born of the Spirit because our attitude resembles that of God. Uh, chiefly in view in this passage then is our love for our enemies. Verse 46, Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now, you, may, you know this, the tax collectors at this time were seen as, amongst the Jews, as being the worst of the Jews. Uh, they, they were seen as traitors because they assisted the Roman government, which the Jews hated, 
as well as took more than was required so that they personally could be wealthy. And so, you know, even though they are viewed as the very worst people in society, Jesus says, well, even they love those who love them. And so although the scribes and Pharisees taught that to to love your neighbor meant only to love those who are your friends uh, and those who are good to you, Jesus says, well, there's nothing special about that. Uh, There's nothing special about that. Tax collectors do the same. Therefore, what, what reward should you expect for such unimpressive behavior? In verse 47, Jesus says, And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Again, in keeping with the nationalism of the time, the Gentiles were seen as an absolutely abhorrent people. And it's not necessarily that they were wrong. After all, without God, they were an idolatrous and sinful lot. But Jesus says, even the heathens, even the pagans, greet their brothers and are kind to those who are kind to them. There's nothing nothing special about that. There's nothing nothing praiseworthy about such behavior. So Christ asks the question, what more are you doing than others? In other words, how are you living compared to the heathen? The reality is that the Christian should be distinguished from the pagan in that we love our enemies in that we even love them. We even love the pagan and the heathen. That is what is so fascinating about the Christian, just how different he is from the rest of mankind. And just as Jesus had enemies, we will too. Like I said, how could we love our enemies if there were no enemies for us to love? It's just the reality that the godly, the righteous, the wicked are going to hate them. It's, it's, it's a inevitable fact of the Christian life. But how do we respond to them? We respond to them with love. They they, they will not even know what to do. The pagan is going to expect you to behave like them. And when they become angry and vile and, and nasty, they will expect you to pay back likewise. But you will utterly shock them when you respond back with love. Just as Christ died for us while we were yet enemies of God. That question, however, you know, Jesus asks, he says, he asks, what more are you doing than others? We can think about that for a long time, can't we? A Christian people must seriously consider the question of, well, what separates you from the heathens? What separates you from the non-believers of our day? Our lives, our behavior should not resemble theirs. We should be totally different. Now, there are many people who think that the way you reach the world is by being like the world. They're wrong. Could not be more wrong. So I ask you, if you looked at your life, would someone be able to tell that you were any different than the non-believers? Would someone be able to tell that you are any different than your unbelieving co-workers, your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving family? What separates you from them? If anything, Jesus believes that our lives should be so radically different 
from theirs. And he offers you that in his work of grace because it comes by grace alone. His grace has the power to change and to transform you and to bring you the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and thus be saved. Though you, though you are at once his enemy, you will see how he has loved you, and you shall then love your enemies as you love yourself. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, we thank you for your word this evening that we have received of. Uh, Father, we pray that these things would not stay in, in, in our ears only, but would find their way down into our hearts. God, that this would convict us, that this would encourage us, that it would strengthen and, and empower us in, in the way that we go about our lives uh, throughout the week, dear Lord. Uh, Pray that you would give us opportunities to, to apply these things, that we may see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives so that we could glorify you, dear God. We ask that you would make us holy as you are holy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.